Welcome to another episode of Saltgrass, a program produced on Jara Country, looking at how our local communities can transition to healthier ways of being for our collective future and our planet. My name is Ali Hanley, and today I'm exploring the topic of degrowth with Anitra Nelson and Terry Lay. I think we all know that our global habits of consumerism are destroying the planet. But what is the alternative? Never buying anything new again? Some new tech solution that we don't know of yet that will somehow save us all? Or do we overthrow the government and hope that the new regime is somehow free of corruption and self-interest? A couple of episodes ago, we spoke with Warwick Smith about his life as both an ecologist and an economist, and this topic of our financial system and how it impacts our behaviour and how it drives the damage that we are doing to the planet is very complicated and, I think, very interesting. I'm hoping to have Warwick back on the show along with some others to discuss other topics related to economics and how it impacts the environment. But today... I'm talking with Terry and Anitra about a movement that's growing globally called degrowth. Anitra and Terry are both academics who are passionate about this. Anitra lives in central Victoria and I first met her as a leader in the local eco-housing group. Anitra is Associate Professor and Honorary Principal Fellow at the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the University of Melbourne. And she's an activist scholar who has just released a book called Exploring Degrowth with Vincent Leahy and is working on several others on the theme of degrowth. Now, Terry Lay is a contributing author to an upcoming book of Anitra's called Food for Degrowth. Terry is a sociologist and a conjoint lecturer with the University of Newcastle in Australia. His research focuses on sustainable food security, philosophy of the social sciences, responses to the environmental crisis and anarchist theory. In this episode, we discuss some of the key principles of the degrowth movement and explore some examples of how it might play out in reality. Have a listen. See what you think. Saltgrass is produced on Jara country, home of the Jajawarung. Sovereignty was never ceded. I pay respects to elders past, present. And emerging. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Okay, so I thought I'd start pretty broadly (laughs) because a lot of people, as you must know, have not really heard of degrowth or don't understand it as a concept. I thought I'd start with the word itself. I can only imagine that it could make some people nervous because people would assume that we have to have economic growth to thrive because that's all our politicians talk about. And degrowth kind of sounds like a dreaded recession or even something like the Great Depression. What do you guys say when people express concern about degrowth in that sort of context? Should I throw it to one of you in particular? Maybe start with Anitra. Yes, degrowth as a word is really a provocation. And in fact, it gets at the very heart of that belief that we have to have growth in order to have security. And so degrowth, in actual fact, 
is not at one end of the spectrum to growth and growth being good and everyone having everything and degrowth, people having nothing, but rather degrowth is quality as growth is to quantity. So it's something quite different from growth. Mm. So growth is all about having more and more and more, whereas degrowth is actually focusing on quality of life. Is that what you're saying? Growth economies are usually highly inequitable. And we don't just have people with lots of money. We also have people who are really, really poor and homeless. And degrowth is on quality of life and it's on everyone's basic needs being met. But because it also respects the Earth's limits, then it's about everyone just having what's sufficient for them, but having quality of life over and above that, rather than wasting the Earth's resources. Yeah. So, Anitra, you have said in the past, I see degrowth as a critical principle for achieving environmental sustainability. Should we talk about, maybe we should talk about the basic principles of degrowth, but I kind of would like to get to why it's a sustainability issue as well. So do you want to talk to sustainability first, perhaps? Degrowth can be conceived mainly in terms of a degrowth in, in resource use and environmental damage and impact. That's the key idea, whereas when we normally talk about growth in economic terms, we're talking about GDP or gross domestic product growth. And on what I'd say about the second, about gross domestic product growth, is that we know that, in fact, when we have increases in GDP, we also have increases in environmental impact. This is just a, an experiential fact, an empirical fact of, of the present period. And so, in, in a sense, degrowth is generally believed that, that within the context of a capitalist economy, you've got to, you, you will end up by having a, a less GDP if you have degrowth and environmental impact. But what we'd say about that is that there are many ways to deal with that situation which don't result in unemployment and scarcity in a sense of, of loss. And, and, and that what we have at the moment is we can have an increase in GDP and yet we can still have more unemployment. You know, depending upon GDP is just about the value, total value of money. So that, that to, you can increase that total value of money and it can all go to the rich. You know, there's all sorts of options Whereas we could decrease that value of money and most people might be much better off. You know, they might have regular and secure employment, secure housing, you know, a nice life, and yet we'd, we'd have less GDP. The, the way it's normally constituted is in the framework of a, a normal market capitalist economy and how that operates. That's how people worry, why people worry about the GDP growth. But we don't envisage that kind of capitalist market economy of the kind we've got now continuing. We, we would like to see something else. Yeah, so we do see a lot of people trying to measure other things other than just the money, <laughs> where you get your national happiness quotas and all sorts of other things. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I haven't heard of a very, I guess, realistic sounding alternative. And I'm wondering if degrowth is that. So maybe we should talk about the basic principles. I know that one of the principles is frugal abundance, which I think touches on that point of what people fear is lack and absence of of the stuff that they're used to having and the usual signifiers of success, which is, you know, a comfortable home and being able to go on holiday and all of those sort of things. So what's frugal abundance in degrowth? Okay, yes. So frugal abundance 
refers to degrowth culture and practices whereby we try and fulfil our basic needs and we try and do it in convivial ways, ways that are enjoyable so that we enjoy the way that we grow food and we make houses. We do a lot of things together, so in collectives and cooperatives. And the idea is is that we're just meeting what we need in terms of shelter and food, but we're doing it in ways that make us feel, feel really whole as people. And so there's very strong cultural aspects, artistic aspects, to the ways that people exercise degrowth. Mm. I think that's really interesting because I guess one of the key differences between that and our current economic model is that our current economic model is like every person for themselves. You know, it's like you can succeed if you're an entrepreneur and if you make lots of money, but there's sort of a sense that the state will take care of some things, but your basic abundance is on you and your ability to work hard and, you know, live this sort of life that has been built up as an ideal. But it's all about each of us having our own home and we don't need to know our neighbours, we don't need to work in a cooperative or grow our own food or any of those things. So is degrowth really challenging a lot of those assumptions about what shape our lives should take? I think one of the things about that is that that normally in the current economy people expect to get their their social life and their social enjoyment out of leisure, completely separate from work. And, and they expect at work to be in competition with other workers and in, and in an antagonistic relationship with their boss. So they experience work, you know, a large part of their life, which is basically a write-off, you know, like from the point of view of social life. And so they look to leisure consumerism for, for those kind of social pleasures, whereas in a degrowth economy of the kind that we're proposing, those social pleasures would include the pleasures of working with other people on creative projects, gardening together or helping other people fix up their house or working on some sort of production of a useful item like a car, you know, a train or whatever, bus, etc., etc. Whereas at the moment, anyone who's doing that kind of productive work is pitted against other workers as competitors for, you know, scarce jobs. We, we see that as more like a community festive moment where people work together and enjoy working together. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually. I think a lot of people do go, oh, well, I'm going to have to work and that's my eight hours of drudgery and then outside of that I get to party or, you know, build my happy life. And it seems a really insane way to live, actually, when you step outside and step away from that and just sort of think about what that really means. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I think a lot of people in Australia have a concept of frugal abundance through community gardens, permaculture projects. You know, there are a range of ways in which we already do those kinds of things. It is a way of actually bringing it together and saying we aim to do everything like this. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, taking food production aside, what are other ways that frugal abundance could manifest if the whole of society went to a degrowth way of operating? I think if people have a lot of pleasure in reusing clothes and doing craft work around sewing and knitting and all of those kinds of things so that you have, you know, a very different kind of fashion if you're thinking about degrowth fashion. 
So I guess a lot of the things that people do in their spare time as a hobby might actually become what they would focus on in the degrowth economy. Precisely. So that's really interesting, isn't it? And I, and I suppose I'd say that we think the frugal part of frugal abundance is the frugality in using resources, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a less exciting time or a less enjoyable time or that you don't have material items that you enjoy and work on. You know, it just means that when you do have material items, they're not made in a way that costs the planet. You know, so at the moment, like, well, let's look at food as a really classic example. At the moment, you sit down to a meal and, and you know, you, you're eating from a tin of tomatoes that have been grown in Italy and moved to Australia with fossil fuel. I mean, that's nutty. It's just completely crazy. Uh, a frugal abundant meal would just mean that you preserved the tomatoes yourself from the summer or, you know, your community had done this and provided them to you. It wouldn't mean that you weren't eating tomatoes. The, the frugal part would come in the fact that you're not using massive amount of resources to do these sort of things in your life. Right. Yeah. So there really is at its core, like, it's a sustainability movement, isn't it? Degrowth. So, yeah, most definitely. Yes. Yeah. So let, let's unpack that a little bit more. Well, I think what it is, is, is that there are a lot of sustainability movements, and we can look at transition towns, for instance, or the idea of circular economies or donut economies. And they don't actually get to the basis in practice of how you limit your consumption of energy and materials. So degrowth is this kind of very strong principle that you could match with the sustainability movement, but it has a very precise meaning and it, and it really focuses your attention on respecting the limits of the earth. But at the same time, not just decreasing material and energy use, but also decreasing inequalities and seeing that all of that has to all link up together in order to make a, a system that actually really works in practice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I just had another thought about the can of tomatoes. Oh, yeah. I mean, the other thing about the can of tomatoes is that you've, you've worked half an hour in a job that maybe you hate, being ordered around by a boss who's totally stupid in order to buy a can of tomatoes. And now, the abundance of the degrowth economy comes in the fact that you're having the same meal of tomatoes, but the process of creating that meal has been an enjoyable process. Like either you're growing the tomatoes yourself or they've been given to you by a friend and you getting together with other people that you know to preserve the tomatoes and so on. In some ways, the abundance comes in the way things are being produced convivially and in enjoyable ways rather than in, in being involved in a job which is really taking your life away from you. Yeah, great. So I feel like there's a lot of people in perhaps the alternative communities who are all for growing their own tomatoes and, you know, doing all sorts of things that are in line with this. They might already be involved in permaculture and food swaps and, and sewing up their clothes themselves or swapping with people. How do we get this sort of idea into the mainstream? Can we convince people who are really fixated on having speedboats and really fancy houses and <laughs> sending their kids to private school, how do we convince people with really different values to take on these values? I think there are a couple of things that degrowth is really concentrated on in those areas. And we talk about quite a lot in exploring degrowth. And one of them is to be highly aware 
of the extent to which advertising really promotes people's consumption. And in fact, it's a degrowth principle to try and ban advertising. So that's one way of trying to make people more aware of what's really happening in their lives. And another is that degrowth protesters against big infrastructure and cars that have been part of all of those movements of, in fact, sort of the whole bike culture is another sort of example of degrowth. The cycling and culture. It's very, yeah, and it's very interesting the extent to which cycling has actually become, you know, really fashionable. So, and I suppose you would need to have a reflection on that and, and notice that you don't want to actually have this whole bike culture where people are creating bikes. Like I do have friends who've got bikes that are as expensive as cars and, and, and have special costumes that they wear to go out biking and all of that kind of thing. So it's being aware that we actually, and this is where we get back to the growth economy one of the key problems for all sustainability movements working within capitalism is, is that it tends to be somehow either co-opted by or even people involved in the sustainability movements, for instance, in permaculture, you decide, oh, yeah, well, look, I'll provide permaculture goods and services. You know, and then you become part of a growth economy and you might be doing things in a better way in terms of not using chemicals and things like that. But we need to be reflecting and always remembering that the earth has limits and this is one of the big barriers to sustainability at the moment. Mm. So degrowth doesn't get rid of money altogether, though, does it? Or does it? No, that's a controversial issue. <laughs> um, yeah, look, can I just, before we go on to that, can I just go make a comment on, on what you asked before, which is, you know, how do you get other people into it? First of all, I think that the, the sort of things that we're doing now, we're picking the low-hanging fruit. You know, these are the things that people can now do that are easy to do in the current situation, you know, like repairing your own clothes, growing your own tomatoes and so on. And what we're not looking at is like how to produce steel in a degrowth way, how to produce trains in a degrowth way, you know, these these sort of more, more complicated... How to run a hospital and... Yeah, how to run a hospital that require a lot more social cooperation. And in, in a sense, I think we have to acknowledge that and say, yes, we, we really need to take over the whole society and what we're offering is a change to the whole social organisation. And these little experiments are what we're doing now that can work and start moving in that direction, but we don't regard them as the whole solution. The second thing I'd say is that consumerism comes out of alienated labour. In other words, when people have jobs that are really awful and, and terrible, they compensate themselves and they're encouraged to compensate themselves by buying stuff. And in a sense, you have to overturn that connection by attacking alienated labour and by re replacing it with some other kind of alternative and offering that as a, a different framework for living. You know, this has to be a whole social change. Now, how to get people involved in that? My research suggests that people are extremely worried about the environmental crisis, but they don't know what to do about it, and they don't think anything can be done about it politically. And I think what we in the environmentalist movement and degrowth is offering an alternative which we can say to people, well, actually, without degrowth and yet less resource use, we can't actually deal with these problems. 
I mean, when you look at people and they're all voting for the, for the mainstream parties and they're not doing that much in their lives and they're buying all these consumer goods, you think, oh, my God, how are we ever going to get to, to convince this mob? When you actually interview them and say, well, what are you worried about? Like climate change, like environmental disaster, like huge pandemics, like, in other words, there's a vast amount of worries. And the thing, the thing about what we want to do is we want to say, okay, so this is the solution. You know, we're, go- we're going to suggest this solution to you as an alternative. So that's what we're promoting. In terms of how to do this, well, we're doing it every way we can through putting blog posts and webs and writing books and, and door knocking and, and working through various political p- groups and parties and, you know, like in, being involved in community activism of any kind that's actually going now. And that's, how, that's what you can do. That's all you can do. But also, I think it's really obvious at the moment, when we've had the pandemic, that capitalism has some really great weaknesses. And one of those weaknesses is is that any hiatus, any break in capitalism, immediately means that the economy goes into a downward spiral and everyone has to pay. We've made this economy and in a degrowth economy, we would be much more focused on just producing things for people's use. And this is where we're getting away from the money side of it because it's very much the monetary way that capitalism works that means that we have all of the insecurities and we have the weakness of a perpetual and constant shadow of depression or recession. If we're actually creating things in our local area, we call it open relocalization in degrowth, then we know exactly where the things are. If there is some seasonal problem, we work ahead and make sure that there's always a little bit more than we really need and require. And we're not in a situation of global capitalism where you have just-in-time production, which, for instance, meant that people didn't have protective equipment with the pandemic or they were worried about not having toilet paper. Everything is being produced as locally as it can be. So there are ways in which people, especially having had the experience of the pandemic and the experience that we will have in the next six months of all sorts of economic insecurities, which mean that degrowth actually suddenly makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense that you you know that you can actually get your food locally. A pandemic comes. But you deal with that in the same way that we have, but you don't have all of the economic repercussions that we've actually had to deal with at the same time. Mm. If everything's local, I guess you can still trade with people further away. But, for example, if there was a massive drought or a plague of locusts or any of these natural disasters, how would the local community negotiate that, I guess, if there really wasn't enough at that point in time locally? We run on a principle that everyone's basic needs need to be met. And so 
we have problems in capitalism when that happens, when there's a famine, because everything's done on the basis of trade and everyone thinks, well, if you haven't got the money or if your harvest hasn't come in and it's as strong as it should be, that's your problem. But it's really just a a change of mentality in that sense. I totally agree with what Anita just said, but I suppose what I think is that when we talk about degrowth for environmental reasons, we assume that local production is the most efficient and effective from an environmental point of view in almost every case. So we certainly envisage things like housing and, and furniture and clothing and food and whatever being produced locally, and we think that's quite quite feasible if we're looking at a bioregional scale. But I would also say is that, yeah, there are various high-tech goods that we still intend to be using, and they have to be achieved by making bits in one town and moving to to another town or village, and that we expect to continue to run a train service that will be able to do that so that we'd use a lot less energy in transporting stuff around, but it'd still be available. So in a situation like you're talking about of an unforeseeable and disastrous shortage in one particular area, then it wouldn't be that difficult to move things, to transport things to another area to deal with that that crisis. And and also, I mean, and, and totally would agree with what Anitra said there too. That that if we're not looking at an economy that's just in time, with everything's pared down to the ma- maximum possible efficiency to make the maximum possible amount of money, then we'd have surpluses. People would have storage more than they would would be likely to use. And other areas, like say this happened in Australia, in a particular area of Australia was in drought or just just suffered a huge bushfire or something. Other areas would be readily able to supply what they needed to deal with the situation because they'd have stocks and reserves for such sort of events. Yeah, even in our bushfires from last summer, we saw millions of dollars flooding to the areas that were bushfire affected by people who were just compassionate and wanting to help. Yeah, that was amazing. I can imagine the same thing happening in a degrowth economy, except it wouldn't be cash flowing. It would be, as you said, tins of tomato. <laughs> yeah, yeah, goods in kind, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I think people can be a lot more generous in the context of having an economy in which you don't have to have all these very rigid accounts that this is my income and that's all I've got to spend and if I want a house, I'm going to need to save it and I need to put something aside for my mortgage and this, that and the other. So how does degrowth account for people who perhaps can't contribute or take part in the various frugal abundances that are happening? (laughs) It's a very caring economy. There's a whole area of care studies, for instance, that's developed, that a lot of care practices have become much more, people have become much more aware of caring as a really, really important aspect of the way of looking at our productive activities. So people with physical disabilities or mental health problems or any reason that they may not be able to contribute would still be cared for? Well, Yeah, I would argue that they would be cared for better. I think that a lot of people living in the economic bounds where, as I say, you need to work in in order to get your own income so that you've got your little sum of money and that's what you spend in order to get your basic needs. If we're caring for everyone in the way that a lot of households are used to, mothers and fathers helping their children, 
and the children helping elderly people or the elderly people looking after the younger people. We're more relaxed about the whole way that we do things together. We're also seeing that no one is really completely handicapped. No one is without, except perhaps when they're close to death, without the capacity to contribute in a variety of ways. What I would say about that and and add to that is that in a degrowth economy, you'd have a situation where there was much less time being spent in productive work because you're using less material goods and resources. So, So consequently, people would generally have a much less hurried existence than they do now. And, and there'd be more time to do that sort of thing. And, and also I'd say that this relates to your earlier question about money. I mean, I, I think degrowth is maybe a bit divided on the question of money, but one way to look at, at degrowth is, is in the context of, of a community economy where things are owned in common and there's no money, in, in which case it would be very simple to deal with situations like that just by providing for people's needs. That would be how the whole economy worked. It seems people who had some disability wouldn't be a special case, you know, like an old person or, or a child. or one. That, As Anitra said, it'd be just like in a family, this is not even taken as an issue. Mm. So we've covered frugal abundance and conviviality and open re- relocalisation. Was there another concept at the core of degrowth? Autonomy. Uh, oh, yeah. Poli- political autonomy, yeah, is quite yeah. a strong principle of degrowth. So instead of having our hierarchical politicking and that is having political parties and unions and nations, we would be working much more towards having a lot of consensual decision-making at a grassroots level and then building up networks between those different organisations. So you've got communities that are all linked by a mountain range or a body of water, whether that be a lake or an ocean. So there would be people who would be working collaboratively from different communities on that, but we wouldn't see the centralisation of power that we see in current nation states and internationally. So we would still we would still be looking at having global communications and being very open and diverse in our cultures, but we would be looking at a lot more direct power by people in their local neighbourhoods, as Terry brought up, the idea of commons, so that it's much more looking at stewardship of land than ownership of land. Yes, so we'd have a network of community economies rather than the government uh, making decisions for the whole nation state. And the decisions would be made by the people who are most involved and have most interest in a particular issue. Yeah, that's interesting to me. I, I think my mind, when you mention these things, especially the water, went to the Murray-Darling problem. Debacle. Debacle. <laughs> disaster. <laughs> where We had massive environmental degradation, and I did an episode on that a while ago. And it was... Basically, like the river system is ginormous and so people hundreds of kilometres away siphoning off water so that the people downstream are not getting enough water and the natural systems 
you know, would allow for so much more water downstream, but because it's being siphoned off onto farms and massive industrial scale agriculture, that's the problem. And obviously with degrowth, we wouldn't have massive scale agriculture owned by foreign interests, but how would degrowth account for say one group upstream, either polluting or using all the water in a river? Yeah, like environmental justice becomes a principle so that it becomes a matter that it's just unjust if that were happening and there would need to be a subtle understanding of how much you could use upstream in order not to be compromising what people could do downstream. And you could have those communities in constant communication with one another so that when there was more water flowing, you know, they might say, well, let us know if you have a problem down there, that sort of thing. It's just a completely different way of communicating about problems. So people would be gaining status by looking after the interests of other people and other communities along the Murray-Darling rather than scrabbling to make a profit in the context of the monetary economy. Yeah, competition and individual interests and conflicts are really part and parcel of the kind of economies and politicking that we have today. The degrowth sees it's sort of like trying to reverse that by having a lot more collaboration, having very basic principles that we're all respecting. I mean, we basically believe that, that capitalism doesn't really adequately make use of human nature as it actually is and that people are quite generous and that that in in other non-capitalist societies, people gain status from looking after the interests of other people. And we could be living like that too. When you talk about these little communities that sort of have their own natural boundaries and how they interact with other communities next door and and further up or downstream, it it actually makes me think of how Indigenous cultures have, have operated for millennia. Most definitely. Australian Aborigines had a really sophisticated polities in that sense. And it's very interesting because although you had around 600 different groups all patchworked and jigsawed across Australia, they had very porous boundaries so that where you had moths, for instance, in caves in one particular season, you would have an arrangement between different tribes coming from different neighbouring lands who would come into that land during that period and make use of that resource. And that's what we would see happening in degrowth. Yeah, that's a really good example. Mostly we wouldn't be trading things. I think it's better a term is exchange because it wouldn't be trade, but we wouldn't be exchanging things over huge distances because of the environmental cost of doing that sort of thing and the, and the fact that it's not necessary. On the other hand, you know, some things people would maybe want to move around and go on holidays and go somewhere else and and maybe, you know, we'd be exchanging some things that were, were important and coming from other parts of the world. But we'd do that in ways that didn't have an impact on resources. So that could be done by sailing ships or, you know, there'd be solar-powered trains or something. And we'd be using these, not a huge amount, but we could certainly use these some of the time. And also we'd envisage, like Anita said before, we'd envisage a continuation of electronic communication and we'd, we'd be aiming to make that sustainable, which is in the moment. Yeah, so that's a whole other topic, isn't it? How to make our, our tech world sustainable. Yeah. yeah. And what role does government play, do you, do you see, in a degrowth society? I think we were working towards a different kind of government. 
And so that means that it's quite interesting that there's a person called Craig Walters who's standing for local council in Darabin in Melbourne on a degrowth platform, Vote for Degrowth. And his website is really fascinating because in many ways it's a spoof and it's a, it's a sort of like showing that if we were to follow degrowth policies, you know, he actually says, well, there's not, there's not going to be much in this for you because he's, he's actually being very humorous about, again, all the competition that goes into and all the very growth-oriented kind of statements that a lot of people who are going to represent us will make. And so degrowth has a kind of tension with the current kind of government because there's a way in which we want to be, yes, saying let's ban advertising, let's not build this and that and the other. So these are very political topics and we can intervene in debates in those kind of ways. And they also sound like things that would need to be regulated. So you'd need some sort of force to enact the regulation and and, and make it happen. Because you can have good intentions as much as you like, but some people will go, oh, yeah, well, we'll just do a little bit of advertising. <laughs> well, they do that today, outrageously. Yeah, I mean, my, my perspective on, on it is, is like this. I think that in the, in the context of the current market econ- capitalist economy that we've got, that anybody who, who wants to promote social justice or look after the environment has to kind of be involved in having an influence on government. At the same time, you know, like in other words, to do what you just said, regulate something or other. But at the same time, these moves never get off the ground unless there's a huge grassroots movement already putting into practice some of the ideas which they're promoting through that. And so we're concentrating on that that grassroots because we think that's where it's at at the moment and that's what needs to happen. But from my point of view, I think degrowth is, is ambivalent on this, you know. From my point of view, I don't think there's any necessity for a national government to regulate things in the context of a post-capitalist economy. But I think that's only one opinion within degrowth. It's certainly not the only one. Yeah, there are other people in degrowth who argue for what they call a steady-state economy, and that's very much a state-run and policy-laden vision of what a model of degrowth would be. So that would still have a system of government that is sort of central and can coordinate things that perhaps need to be coordinated at a larger scale than individual? Yeah, it's more of a central planning kind of model. Because I think our our current government is very embedded with the economy at its core in terms of all of its calculations and what it can offer us and what it gets from us in terms of taxes and things like that. It's all about the economy and in theory, in the most idealistic sense, it's supposed to be able to provide us with healthcare and, and good roads and all of those sort of things. So I guess a government under degrowth would have a very different brief, wouldn't it? It would have a very different set of jobs to do. Our idea of autonomy, as I say, is sort of very much direct democracy. And because we've got an economy that's working in a very local way, it would be lots of people making decisions about things in a direct way. Just remember that because if we pay a third of what we work in taxes, you know, that's a day that we ourselves could be directly spending 
on talking about what we produce and how we produce it and making sure that we've got enough storage for when we have the locusts come or whatever. So we would see there being a lot of decisions that are made by ordinary people who are the people who produce things and they're the people who are going to consume them. So it's it's actually quite an efficient system as well. And it sounds like it involves community participation a lot more because a lot of people just are like, they vote once every four years and don't think about politics much else aside from complaining about what the politicians are doing. But this sounds like it's much more involved. (laughs) Yes, and a lot of people get very frustrated with that and would really prefer to have a lot more say in what's actually happening so that at least you can live with a decision We know that, again, in families, in households, in couples, where you think through a problem and you make a decision together, I mean, it's not a perfect decision that has been made, but hopefully you make decisions that you can live with, you know? And that is a much easier way to live and less frustrating than if you sort of can just vote every four years for someone else is making those kinds of decisions on your behalf. So I think that at the moment in, in the rich countries, that most in the democracies, most people think that voting and trying to influence politics is not very effective and doesn't do very much. And that's partly because of the reality that big multinational companies and big economic interests decide most things and, and can impact on you. Like if you annoy them sufficiently, they take their capital overseas and you have a recession and dot, dot, dot. I mean, it's like it's very it's very difficult for for the mainstream parties to actually do anything in particular. They constantly have to promise that they're going to do stuff, but really they haven't got much room to move. And I mean, and no wonder people are ground off with politics and just sort of don't don't get involved. Whereas in the degrowth economy that we're proposing, most decisions would be made by people gathering together and saying, "Oh, we're going to do this," or deciding how to do it. It wouldn't be an issue left up to government or to anybody else, you know. We have kind of examples of that very much in the area of climate change and working towards zero carbon emissions. It's amazing the extent to which a lot of real movement in those areas is actually happening at a grassroots level. And it's happening with people getting together in grassroots ways and discussing things and really moving along. And the argument that all of these things need to be made at an international level and then just snap of the fingers overnight, we'd be zooming towards zero carbon, hasn't worked. For decades, there's been talk around that. But where the real movement has actually happened has been at that grassroots level. This is for a lot of sustainability movements. This has been the case. So this is one of the reasons why the degrowth movement has adopted this approach to politics. How do you talk about things like national security or the the idea that another country might wage war? If the whole of Australia or even just Victoria, for example, decided to adopt degrowth as a strategy, how would a collection of small communities defend themselves? Nature, do you want to start with that or what? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll say a couple of things. Number mm. one, our approach is a non-violent one and it would also be demilitarisation. And again, people would not 
be allowed to you know use nuclear energy that kind of thing at the same time you have to be realistic and we're not all just going to lie down and die because there are people acting violently so and and that's part of a nonviolent defense that would be very much structured along nonviolent defense principles and approaches that people have developed quite highly. What do you think, Terry? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I mean, well, I, I suppose one answer to that question is to say we really need a global change. Obviously, we might start off with Australia, but I see this as a change in the mode of production. Like capitalism came in at the end of the feudal period, it didn't just come in in one country. It came in across the globe. You know, like it. It, it became a dominant across the globe. And and I see degrowth as being like that. We might start it off in Australia. And yes, it's possible that we might get invaded by the Americans or something like that. But basically, if it was in the zeitgeist and in, in the way people were thinking about life sufficiently to actually get off the ground in Australia, it wouldn't take long before it spread to the rest of the world. I mean, we have global problems that need to be solved by degrowth. And there really is no other solution. And so I, I expect that within a, a sort of reasonably short period, like I'm talking like 50 years or whatever, we would have an international degrowth starting where, where that sort of thing that you're talking about would be most massively unlikely. So that's my first answer. The second thing I'd say is that I, I, don't, I don't see a network of villages connected by internet and trains and so on as being unable to defend themselves. What they do is is meet together and arrange an armed response if that was necessary to some sort of invasive force. But, you know, like there's, there's all sorts of options and I think negotiating some kind of uh, solution might be one. Converting the, the army of the opposing side to, to your way of thinking, I mean, there's all <laughs> sorts of options that obviously from a degrowth point of view we'd be working on rather than the sort of macro option of trying to defeat and obliterate the enemy. Sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Anitra, do you want to talk about the book Exploring Degrowth, which is available now? Very early in 2019, I got together with a few people at Pluto Press and we decided to start on a new book series. And the book series is now called Fireworks. And one of the topics that the other editors thought would be really good to do a book on would be degrowth. So the series itself actually picks out topics that are really contemporary and are, like degrowth, familiar to people, but they don't really understand maybe what it's about. And so I was seconded to go and talk to some people in the degrowth movement about writing a book, and at the end of the day, Vincent Ligi, who's a French and international degrowth movement spokesperson, and I decided to work on something together, and we decided that there wasn't really a book that was on the degrowth movement, degrowth activism. There are quite a lot of degrowth books out that are looking at the de arguments for degrowth and maybe models of degrowth and that kind of thing, but we wanted to very much focus on the movement. So 
that's what exploring degrowth is about. It's very much about what activists in the degrowth movement have been doing, why they've been doing it, and what the challenges are for the movement. Great. And Terry, you have reviewed the book, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. So it's a very good, readable, short introduction to degrowth and covers all of the issues that we've been talking about today. It's really good. I, I, I would also like to recommend Degrowth in Movement. That's a much longer book by four editors. It's called Degrowth in Movement with an with the S in brackets at the end. And all I'd say about Degrowth in Movement is it's a really good introduction to degrowth by providing case studies of different degrowth movements and, and activism around the world and globally. And lots of the chapters are written by various social movements which the editors identify as as relevant to degrowth, you know, like it might be prisoners' justice or something like that. I mean, which you wouldn't automatically think, oh, degrowth, but actually <laughs> it, it may be connected. Yeah. And so that's an excellent book. That's all and I'm... degrowth in the suburbs, Terry. Yeah, and degrowth in the suburbs. It's really good because it's Australian, and it, it's it's like a companion to D- David Holmgren's book, Retro Suburbia. It's more of a sort of theoretical uh, introduction to those topics and covers somewhat similar ground, but in much more detail, and it's and it has a whole lot to say about the way the economy is structured now and why it causes environmental problems and how a deep growth economy could solve those problems. And tell me about the book that you're both working on called Food for Degrowth. Food for Degrowth is the second in what we expect to be a series. The first one was called Housing for Degrowth. Food for Degrowth, I've been co-editing with an RMIT colleague because I used to be at RMIT University and we have 15 chapters and Terry has written one of them and he'll talk about that in a minute but just in terms of the way that the book is structured we've actually followed the structure of activism as we've described it in chapter three in Exploring Degrowth. So in that chapter, what we look at is the ways in which activists work in their personal lives. So the first part of the Food for Degrowth book is actually looking at self-provisioning at a very local level. So the first chapter is by Patrick Alexander and Meg Ullman, who live in Dalesford, and they've been living as degrowth practitioners for well over a decade. So it's very much grounded in their daily life and daily practice. And each of the chapters goes through there. We're looking at Eastern European countries and also Africa. And then there's another part, which is looking at more collective ways of producing vegetables and fruits and cereals and community-supported agriculture, that kind of thing. And then there's a section which is on degrowth experiments that are actually looking at governance across food, looking at different sectors of food in Budapest, for instance, and the ways that they collaborate as networks to further degrowth. And the final section is an even broader review of degrowth more like the degrowth project and that 
is the section in which Terry Lay has a chapter, so I'll let him talk about his chapter. So my chapter's about degrowth and food in Melbourne. I mean, I take Melbourne as a sort of imagined case study of how you would provide food for the people who are living in Melbourne in a degrowth economy. And I look at the options in terms of whether it would be possible to expand food production locally in Melbourne in the suburbs. And I say that that could make a big contribution but that ultimately it would be difficult to move in, you know, maybe about roughly half of the food using transport that wasn't fossil fueled into a huge big conurbation of the Melbourne and of the type like Melbourne and particularly hard with the people living in, in high rise and flats and so on. And propose instead that we might like to decentralise a lot of the population and move out into country towns with uh, rail connection and grow food more locally. So that, that's the basic uh, argument. And one of the most interesting things that I've discovered through doing this whole process was that if we move to a, a degrowth economy and cut back quite a lot on our use of large pasture animals, you know, beef, cattle, sheep, we could actually reduce the footprint of the food needs of Melbourne people. Like, so at the moment, Melbourne people in Victoria to just for food for people in Melbourne. If we move to a different kind of degrowth food production system like permaculture and degrowth, etc., we could get that down to 24%. And that's even if you include all the possible wood that you might need to, to heat houses, not using gas and so on. Mm, that's really interesting. So, so it's like, yeah, so it actually, you know, like in terms of, of nature and national parks and indigenous land rights and so on, we could do heaps more than we are and all live really well. And what I'm also recommending is that we'd, we'd do a lot better if we were living out in the countryside in, in small towns. Because there's been a big debate in the degrowth movement over cities. And this is also an area where there's quite a debate amongst other sustainability movements as well. And so Terry's chapter is very interesting because it, it engages and intervenes in that kind of debate by using Melbourne as an example. Are cities sustainable at all? Can they be? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. A lot of Indigenous people look at cities as if they're cancers. That was Anitra Nelson and Terry Lay talking about degrowth. Again, this is just one theory that people are exploring as a solution to our currently unsustainable systems. What did you think? Let me know in the comments on Facebook or Instagram. And if not degrowth, then what do you think would work better? Links to both Terry and Anitra's works are in the episode description at saltgrasspodcast.com, as well as other references that they made during the interview to books and websites. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. And this program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. Thanks for listening today. I'll be back in a fortnight with a fresh episode for you. In the meantime, those of you listening on community radio on Main FM or 3MDR, I'll have a repeat for you at this very same time next week. Salt, salt, salt in the air. Salt, salt, salt. Grassroots, 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 grassroots. Salt of the earth, people. Grassroots.
grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com.